Lord, let this truly and deeply alter our hearts to seek you, be obedient to you, and love you with all that we are. Amen. So the Israelites are on the border of the promised land, and Moses is teaching them and reminding them of how they are to live when they finally enter the land. This is a fresh start, an opportunity to begin their lives in this inheritance, walking rightly before the Lord. Today, we look at the law that God has given them, and specifically the reasons that God has commanded Moses to teach to the Israelites. He says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. So a few introductory things before we get into the points. The commandment that Moses says here, this is a reference to like the single commandment, the law, the entire set of rules that the Lord is giving the Israelites to follow. This is why it expands then within that passage to say the statutes and the rules. And the word for rules there is equally translated just decrees. These laws that God are giving is just. They are in accordance with his perfect laws of managing the universe. And they are not corrupt. So whatever they are, they're good. We can trust them. We can trust that we can do them for his honor. Next week, we'll consider exactly what that commandment is as a summary and what doing it looks like. But for today... Because this is the order that the text gives it to us, we'll first ask, why? Why has God given us these laws? What is the reason for the command? And the Lord has given us, I believe in this text, five reasons for why he has given us his commands. First one, that we would do them. Second, that we would fear him. That we would have a long life that it would go well with us in our life and that we would multiply as a people whose God is the Lord. So the first one. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. So the first reason is perhaps blatantly clear, but still very important that we say it. The Lord has given us his commands that we would do them. This means that he hasn't given us his commands so that we won't do them, right? He hasn't given us his commands simply so that we can look at them and consume them without letting them change our hearts. It's it's not as though they are like paintings up in an art gallery simply for us to look at them and say, oh, that's nice. Although, I mean, maybe that's a bit of a stretch. You probably will never see a Christian pick up the law or the Bible and simply say, that's nice, and then move on. But even so, this is something that we are to do, to take, to read, to understand. Obedience, though, has been a bit of a contentious issue over the years. There's a set of people who are called antinomians. And they say that because we're under grace, we're not under any laws. But this is not the purpose of the laws. We have been given the laws so that we would do them. For example, see how Peter starts off his letter 
to the church. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. The Lord is calling us to laws and commands so that we would obey them, not for any other reason. But even though that is the case, sometimes I think we live in an age where where's people don't really take this very seriously. Like we hear of being obedient and we avoid our conscience, right? As though we don't have to deal with it. We, we feel, we hear things in our, in our, in our minds and, and even though we know the commands, we choose not to do them. And so I have three examples that I want to pick up on that I think is an outworking of us as a people that don't take obedience seriously. Like this is what I see in churches in, in a lot of different places. Like listening to sermons. All right, so, so these are the three examples that I've got about listening to sermons. Why are we looking at listening to sermons? Because Moses is teaching the law. This is a sermon. So here are my three responses to sermons that I see that I think are a response to us not taking obedience seriously. Have you ever heard someone say after a sermon, gee, that was a good one. Oh, he really brought it today. Man, that was some good preaching. That man's got a gift. Recently talking with someone I think does this. They had a good taste for theology. Don't get me wrong. Um, you know, quite well learned, been going to a church a long time. But when they go to church and come and listen to a sermon, what they want to hear is a good one, a cracker of a sermon. All they're there for is to listen to a good sermon and that's it. All right, number two. The preacher starts and here's what we say. Oh, I know this one. I hope I'll learn something new today. Rather than, I mean, clearly there's nothing wrong with us wanting to learn something new about a passage that we've read before. But, what, but we do that rather than crying out to the Lord that he would cause these familiar scriptures within us to grow roots deep down and change us. We automatically go into this mode of looking for something the preacher says that we don't already know or looking for something the preacher says that we know is wrong. We ignore these beautiful truths that, yes, we've heard a hundred times before, but the Lord is still active in them and still wants to use them to bring us to himself. We think that simply by accumulating knowledge, we will grow without letting these be applied. And the third one may be a bit rarer, but still something that I observed happening in someone I talked to only a week ago. You listened to a sermon, wasn't such a good one though, but you know where you can go to listen to a good sermon. So you go there, you listen to it, and then you're satisfied. Now, fair enough, if you don't go to a church where they're preaching the truth, and you do go to another church and listen to a sermon that day, you know, that's great. We want good teaching. But if you do go to another place or you go to another source, a podcast, just to listen to something better, you might want to check your heart first. Maybe we need to be checking our hearts and ask, are we looking to consume a real good sermon 
Or are we going to look for good teaching because we want to be changed? Because we want the Lord to be working in our lives and we know that false teaching is just not going to do that. So those are my three examples. Can you see what is the same or familiar or similar about all of them? In each of those three examples, we have people, us, coming to the word, coming to listen to a sermon without any intention to listen so that we can apply what we have heard. There's no desire for obedience when we listen to the message. We just want a good sermon or we're looking to find new things that we've heard or we don't want to listen to a bad sermon, but we want to hear something good. But we're not looking, Lord, cry out, Lord, help. How do I apply this? What do you want me to do in response? I mean, our responses nowadays seem to be a far cry from what Peter experienced when he preached his first passage in Acts. You might recall, it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Notice their response. They didn't say, oh, Peter can bring it. And they didn't say, oh, that was a really good sermon. No, they heard, they were cut deep, and they said, what shall we do in response? Paul Washer shares this story, a time that he was preaching a conference. And the first night of the conference, not long after he starts preaching, this fellow gets up from one of the first few rows and just walks out the church. He thinks, well, that's a bit odd, but he keeps preaching. The next night, a bit after he started, the same fella gets up and walks out the middle of the church. He says, well, that's a bit odd, but he keeps on preaching. The third night, the same fella gets up just after the sermon started. Starts walking out, but Washer catches him and says, man, what are you doing? And the fella says, I heard you say something that I haven't got an action in my life. And I need to go and implement that first. Oh, that we would have that kind of zeal for obedience. I mean, I don't know if I'm telling you to exit the church whenever you hear something you don't know. But oh, that we would be so keen to implement the preaching of the word in our lives that we would be like that. Um, I was talking with someone recently after a sermon had been preached on um, on God's word, on reading it, letting it change us, um, this person had incidentally that day heard not so good sermon. So they went to this this other source that I also had happened to to listen to that day. Um, the sermon was on reading God's word, letting it change us, being led by it. And so I, I asked this person, "So are you in response?" going to turn and begin reading and studying God's word deeply each day. And they just laughed at me as though my challenge wasn't worth considering, as though it were a laughable thing to put a serious gear change into your life in response to a sermon. I don't know, maybe I didn't ask it quite the right way, but there are implications, blessings and consequences for now and in eternity that accompany reading and really consistently dwelling in God's word or not doing so. Let us not just pass up a good sermon when we hear it, but let us try with everything 
to put into action in our lives the things that we hear and are convicted by in it. As the Apostle James says, faith without deeds is dead. And it's also a sign of true repentance. Do you want to know if you're truly saved? 1 John 2, 3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Not because we're trying to get saved by keeping his commandments, but because we know him, therefore we keep his commandments. Therefore we do. The second reason that Moses is teaching the commands today is this. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. Now, here's a question that you might ask in light of this. What is it about being taught the law of the Lord that causes us to be growing fear in him? Well, let me take a sample of commands that the Lord has given us since the resurrection. Romans, 9, uh, Romans 12, 9 to 11. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. When I first read this, I honestly thought those are some really nice qualities that I'm told to have. And the next thing I thought is I fall very far short. When I read love one another in brotherly affection, I think I know I don't always do that. Or how about be slothful in zeal? I am often not zealous for the Lord as I should be as his majesty and eternal joy given to us deserves. When I read serve the Lord, I know that at many times I do not. I much prefer to serve myself and, and lift myself up above my brothers and sisters. So the law, then, as we look into it, actually reveals to us our sin. In light of the perfect standard that we have been given by God, and outside of Christ, this ought to scare us. Like, we've got to understand that the scriptures say the wages of sin is death. There's a consequence for it, and we are under that for every law that we have broken. But then recognizing that, we also see our need for forgiveness from this holy God who gave the law. So as Christians, we know we're safe before God because we're in Christ. We're placed in Christ when we repent and we believe that he is Lord and raised, is raised from the dead. But even so, like we, we still recognize and remember that outside of Christ, we're enemies against God. We are lawbreakers. We have a debt of sin against this holy God. And although he is slow to anger, our sin has provoked him so much. That he is very angry with our sin. This is what Paul is saying in Romans 7. When the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So we tremble. 
but here is our hope. We recognize that the death that we deserved is paid by God himself, that Jesus took the cross for all of our sin, and so then alongside his wrath, we have his mercy. And we come to him in that mercy to receive the forgiveness which he offers. From Romans 5, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And now we have a new stance before God that we didn't have before we were saved. We tremble before him, recognizing his power, his authority, and his righteous anger against sin. And we take a deep breath to know his mercy and grace is extended even to us. In his son, Jesus, where we are safe. James and I were watching the storm rolling in several weeks ago. And as we stood there in the presence of the clouds rolling and the thunder, I mean, we were safe in our apartment looking at it from afar, but it was quite, a, quite an awesome experience. And we thought, such is like the fear of the Lord, that we would see him, and be filled with awe and terror. Except with the Lord, the very thing which we're trembling before is also the very thing which is keeping us safe. So then this is the effect of teaching the law within us. It brings about a godly fear of the Lord as we recognize who he is and who we are and our need for him and what he has done for us that we might be put in Christ. But I propose to you that this is mainly just what knowledge of the law does. This is what being taught what the law is does. And, and this is what the first part of our text today says. Now, this is the commandment that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may fear the Lord your God. And while I don't think that fear is ever going to be produced in us unless there is a response, like godly fear, unless there is a response of repentance to that knowledge, growing in the Lord, in fear of the Lord in our life, requires more than just knowledge of the law. True repentance is accompanied by the fruit of obedience, as we see. And this is what we see in the next part of the verse. It says, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life. So the way we know, uh, the way we now go about fearing and growing in our fear of the Lord is obedience. But then you might ask, if the fear of the Lord, according to this passage, starts with obedience, then how is it that I might come to be obedient that I might fear the Lord? Well, I have three sources of obedience for you. The first one is, as this scripture says, through the application of the law. It says, I've given you the law that you may be obedient and fear me. So learn it. Let us study it. Let's get on our knees every day and cry out to the Lord for our daily bread of, of the word. Our spiritual need of refreshing in him. Know that the deep studying of the scriptures, the prolonged meditation on his word, 
is not for academics, not for the pastors, it's not for the preachers, it is for the Christians, the everyday human being. Someone says, blessed is the man who meditates on your Lord day and night. Not blessed is the pastor, though he is. Not blessed is the book writer, though she is. But blessed is the person. And as you meditate on God's word, as you meditate on his commands, and like meditate, not just academically learn, not just read, but meditate, you will come to delight in him, if indeed you are a Christian. So that's the first source, meditating on the commands that he's given, because that's the purpose of them. The second source is, I think, in Deuteronomy 8 verse 6. That says, So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in him and fearing him. So the second source of obedience unto fear is actually fear of the Lord itself. I know this is a bit cyclic, but hang with me. The fear of the Lord is grown in our lives as we keep God's commandments. And the keeping of his commandments is empowered in part by whatever measure of the fear of the Lord that is already in you. So if your first source of empowerment for fear was obedience by studying God's law, then the second source of power for fearing the Lord is obedience by studying God himself, which is the study that increases fear. This is why it says in Deuteronomy 8 verse 6 that we fear him by walking in his ways. We are obedient by walking in his ways because unless you've studied him to know him, you don't know what his ways are. Take heart, though, because every Christian has got a measure of fear to start with. And why can I be sure of that? Because if you are a Christian, it is because you have repented of your sin. And in Proverbs, it says that by the fear of the Lord, we depart from iniquity. So because you've departed from your iniquity to some measure in your very first repentance, when you became a Christian, you can know that you have a measure of the fear of the Lord within you which will be used to empower, in part, your obedience to him. In that time that you first repented, you realized in some way the majesty of God, your own sin, and your separation from him because of your sin, and that is one evidence of the fear of the Lord. And so you returned according to repentance to which he called you and granted you. Proverbs 16.6 By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. And the third source, like Hazel prayed for before, is to ask for it. James says, if you lack wisdom, you should ask. And what is the beginning of wisdom? According to Proverbs 9 verse 10, the fear of the Lord. Ask in faith and God will give. And in this way, David also prays in Psalm 86. He says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. That's obedience. Unite my heart to fear your name. He asks for it, and so we know that God will give it, because he asks in faith. God himself is the one who will will and to work within you, to bring you in 
into obedience because Christ is living in you to do that. Through Christ in you shall your obedience flow. So ask him. This is the third thing. Ask him. And here's some implications of this. If we want to grow in fear of the Lord, seek out where you can be more obedient in your life. And as you grow in obedience, fear of the Lord will follow because these are linked. And if you recognize anywhere in your life that you do not fear the Lord, perhaps it is because there is another place in your life that you're not being obedient to him because fear of the Lord is in part empowered by obedience. You may already know areas of your life you're not being obedient. If so, that's good. Repent. Turn to the Lord. Be obedient to him and your fear will follow. Otherwise, if not, then be as David. Search me, O God, and see if there is any grievous way within me. Lead me in the way of life everlasting. Pray that the Lord will reveal these things to you, and he will. The third reason that we have been given the commandments is this. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that your days may be long. There are physical, tangible blessings, perhaps such as living for a long time, that follow obedience. Of course, there are caveats to that, and I'll mention a few of those. But here's some scriptures on this. Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Right? The fear of the Lord gives you wisdom to turn away from things that could bring about your death. Proverbs 9, 10 to 11. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. Proverbs 10, 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life but the years of the wicked will be cut short. Proverbs 19, verse 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. So we recognize from these verses that as you are obedient to his commands, fearing the Lord in your life, the Lord will, right, this is wisdom, as a general rule, provide for you with material provision and may grant you within this with many days. Here's an Old Testament example of this. King Hezekiah was very sick and told that he wouldn't recover. So he prays earnestly and Isaiah reports to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. So although we are primarily concerned of you know, the glory of the Lord being revealed through salvation, that, that people are being saved, being coming to know the Lord, this is you know, more important than having material provision, the Lord does promise this, to be with us, to go with us. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. 
So there really is a physical present blessing that the Lord promises to those who fear him now. Now, this is not saying you put 20 in the bowl, you get 40 back. What it is saying is that you walk with the Lord and he will keep you safe, that he will look after you, that as you trust him and you put your fear in him, he will go with you. Because, to be sure, eternal life, peace with God, experiencing his joy for eternity is, I think, the only prize worth fighting for, the only prize worth taking in the entire universe. So this is not inviting us to be obedient for selfish material gain. I mean, ultimately, what's in a long life? Long years, short years, who cares? What matters is whether those years were used to be faithful to the Lord. Like Paul says, I count everything else as rubbish. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. Yes, I would rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. And we know that this is only a general rule because we promise that for being Christians we'll be persecuted, that through many trials we enter the kingdom. It doesn't say that in the Bible, if you are a martyr, you didn't fear the Lord because your days were cut short. No, this specifically God says you are blessed. And it is in this sense that these promises are wholly fulfilled, that the greatest fulfillment of life following obedience and fear of the Lord is the eternal life that is given to God's elect for in that our days following the fear of the Lord will be extended eternally long. Jesus said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The fourth reason is that it would go well with us. And we see that reading from the middle of verse 3. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you. Now, the first three reasons that we've looked at were given us in a set. And the last two reasons are also in a set. It says to hear, therefore. So in light of the previous three reasons, hold those in your hand as you consider the next two. Hear, therefore, Israel, and be careful, careful. These are intentional, careful actions to be obedient. It doesn't say natural Obedience is not going to be your regular disposition. We still struggle with the flesh. To be obedient requires that we be careful with how we live. Be careful with our actions. Do what we can to make sure our lives and our hearts and our words and our actions are being obedient to what the Lord has called us to live. And while this is not very good news for those of us who mainly look for comfortable and easy lives... But Jesus never promised us that being a Christian was going to be easy. He said we have to take up our cross and deny ourselves. And I think as Moses adds the emphasis here that we must be careful to do them, we really must heed this warning because if we don't, then the opposite may become true for us. Not as some sort of karma, though I'm sure God's justice is in it, but as a logical flow on from it. For example parent tells his kid not to run out on the road. It's a law. Kid runs out onto the road. It's dangerous. Same for us. 
we must be careful to obey his laws. They are for our good. The Lord wants the best for his children. So this is a fourth reason. Why should we be careful to do them? That it may go well with you. What does it mean to go well with us? Well, consider where we have heard this phrase before. Only a few verses ago. Deuteronomy 5.16 Honour your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long, there's a third point, and that it may go well with you, that's this one, in the land the Lord your God is giving you. We want it to go well with us and the Israelites in the land to which the Lord your God is giving you. Right, this relates back to that um, the end of verse 1. It says, you've been given the laws that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. So Moses is reminding the Israelites, guys, the reason that we're going into the land is to possess it. God is giving us these laws so that we'll know how to live, so that we'll actually be able to possess the land that he's called us to. I.e., if you don't follow these laws, it won't go well with you and you won't possess the land. This is the way the battle is going to be won, through obedience. So if you want to take the land... Obey what God is telling you today. And it's the same for us. The land that we're going across to possess is the true land of milk and honey, the new heavens and the new earth, where we will dwell with God forever. There's no threatening giants of sin in the land, but it requires our obedience. As we've said, the promise of heaven is only open to those who are obedient because only those who are truly obedient are truly in Christ. For us to dwell with harmony with one another and eventually with the Lord in eternity, we must make obedience to God's laws most important in our lives. Take them seriously. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. Delight in God's law. And in every season, you keep on bearing fruit. There's a description of it going well for you. I'm hoping that by considering these things, that considering how obedience to God's commands has implications on us now, will help us to recognize God's want, God wants us to take, it, take him seriously. God wants us to take his commands seriously and not look at them like an art gallery and just say, that's really nice. The fifth and final reason I think we see in this text that the Lord has called us to know the Lord, to have it taught, is this. Hear therefore, Israel, and be careful to do them, that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. If you were an Israelite, when you heard this reason, that they would multiply greatly, your mind would have gone straight to the promise that God gave to Abraham so many years earlier in Genesis 12. This is it. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I'll curse, and in you all the families on the earth shall be blessed. So hopefully they would have the Israelites would have come away thinking, aha, this is how we are going to be that great nation and multiply greatly through obedience, through the teaching of the Lord. This is how these promises that we've been waiting for years for are going to be realized. Now, under the old covenant, this was like literally physical, that they would multiply, become a great nation of faith under God. But under the new covenant, we don't deal in physical descent so much anymore. Israel, it says, is not truly Israel who are physical descendants, but who are spiritual descendants. Which means that, that this promise, this outcome of the teaching of the law is no less true for us today. Because Christ is the seed and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise, we can know that those who are truly in Christ's family are also within the fulfillment of this promise. And so God is still bringing people into his kingdom. He's doing this by now, writing his law on the hearts of those in whom he has put his spirit. Which is why the emphasis on teaching comes. Remember it says in Romans 10, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So it must be made known. It must be proclaimed. The, the teaching of the law must go forth. People must know the word of Christ so they can confess that he is, he is Lord. As we've seen earlier, the law's purpose is to reveal our sin so that we would come to God for forgiveness, that we may know the, the purposes of the law to multiply and make the great nation is, is still relevant for us today as we bring more people to know the Lord. So as you treasure up God's commands, doing them, fearing them, fearing Him, living and going well, God will use you in His kingdom to save people, to bring them in. And this is why it is so important that we pay careful attention to what we're listening to. We pay careful attention to the teaching that we're receiving and his, his word in general, his, his laws and commands, because when we do it, our salvation and the salvation of others is dependent on it. We know this nation's only going to multiply by faith, the right kind of faith, faith that's based on truth. So, if you ever find yourself in a church where there is false teaching repeatedly, like unless you can go in and, 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 and like speak against that so the church repents and speaks truly, like get out. Because false teaching is a poison and only by the mercy of God will you be protected from it. It's why it says in, in 1 Timothy 4, Paul says to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So let me summarize to finish. Let me summarize and then I'll finish. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 1 to 3, we are first told to teach the commandments. The reason that Moses is told teach the commandments is for obedience. The second reason that we're told to teach the commandments is the fear of the Lord. And we've seen that obedience actually leads to fear of the Lord. 
And we've been told and we've seen that fear, at least in part, empowers obedience. We are also told that the reason that we teach the commandments is for long life. And we've seen that fear itself is what leads into long life. And then Moses says, therefore, be careful to do all of God's commands that it may go well with us and that we may multiply greatly. The land that we are going to was foreshadowed by this promised land given to the Israelites. And it will be fulfilled when Christ returns. The world will be made new again. We will dwell with him in all perfection and without sin for eternity. And the way that we will be brought to this place and the way that others will be brought to this place is through the right teaching of the word and through obedience and through fear of the Lord. So let us all the more, as we are exhorted in Hebrews, hold fast to the word and do, do everything that we can to take him at his word and to take his command seriously. Let us not find out that we missed out on the promised inheritance, only to face his wrath for where we neglected his commands. And take heart, because if you're in Christ and the penalty for your sin was covered by mercy, and now the Spirit of Christ dwells in you to bring you life and to empower you with joy in Christ to follow God's commands to his glory, because Christ is the fulfillment of all of this. He was the one who was obedient to do all of God's law perfectly. Christ, who is God's son, was the one who feared the father perfectly. He knew his father in all his ways. Christ is the one who now lives a long life of eternal reign over the universe. He, he has all dominion and power and authority under him. Christ is the one for whom it went wholly well for whom God was with him to live righteously and to without sin, able to be this perfect sacrifice for us. And Christ is the one who was raised from the dead, so that by his spirit, when we repent, we may be a part of those who multiply spiritually, being and leading the way for us to be sons and daughters of the Most High God. So let's look to Christ, the one who now lives in us, to work obedience and fear through us, that we may push on towards the inheritance of this perfect, untainted, eternal life with God in the true promised land.